0: The reason why this all bothers me is because human subjectivity is variable. And what happens with these kinds of discourses is a very um, static, very weak, very vulnerable subjectivity is posited as progressive. But we need a powerful subjectivity. We need a, a changing subjectivity if we are to fundamentally change the world, if we are to take the reins of history, Marx says, but well, we will make history in the full light of reason. And we're, and capitalism is bringing us, you know, the veil is lifted and we're getting closer and closer to the truth of the human hands on history. We have to realize that it is us that have done everything. We have created religions. We have created these institutions and we can recreate them and we can make them different. And all of these discourses invite us to think, no, 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 we're all just a bit messed up, aren't we? It's so hard to control our minds and we're just <laughs> your better self because you're weak. And isn't it so progressive to accept that?
1: Hello, Plastic Pills listeners. We have a very special episode here today where we're talking with Professor Ashley Frowley. But today we're here to talk about her work on the semiotics of happiness. Uh, that's quite a mouthful, but believe me, by the end of this, we will all at least be a little bit more uh, experts on what it means to be happy, how we can be happy. Uh, And we'll discover whether or not it's society that's making us unhappy, uh, whether or not it's ourselves that are making us unhappy.
2: Or if the concept itself doesn't really make sense.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Uh, So thanks a lot, uh, Dr. Foley, for coming here. We really appreciate it.
0: Well, thanks for having me.
1: So your book, The Semiotics of Happiness, uh, made quite a wave uh, in that it was interrogating a very popular subject matter right now. Um, What does it mean to be happy? How do we conceptualize happiness? Uh, And of course, how does society conceptualize happiness uh, in the kind of Grammars and ideologies uh, that are put forth in the twenty first century, uh, and we were just wondering if you could tell us a little bit before we get into the nitty gritty theoretical details of the book about why you chose to focus on this topic. What was the allure of happiness, as it were?
0: Um, well, I started that the research that became that book in two thousand eight, um, so quite a long time ago. Um, but what initially drew me to the subject matter was, um, well, I, before I did my PhD, I was still living in Canada. Um, and my final year of my undergraduate degree, um, I took a class called the Advanced Sociology of Mental Health. And it was literally the very first time, so, you know, we read Foucault and all that kind of stuff, but also the kind of critical literature looking at the concept of mental health and concept of well-being and um, labeling theory and all of that sort of thing. And it was literally the first time in my life that I learned that actually these concepts are contested um these things have a history of uh, a contested history that there are many different ways of being and relating to the world all around the world and historically and we didn't always relate to the world in this way that this sense that it, you know if something bad happens to you, you're damaged um when you have some kind of personality trait that you don't like you think back to what your parents did and blame them you know, that kind of <laughs> the idea that this has only been around for like 100 years shocked me because I thought, well, this is actually just like the scientifically validated way that human beings are. And actually, on, on a personal level, it liberated me because <laughs> up until that point, I had very much been like enmeshed in this what, what sociologists now call therapy culture, um, this this way of relating to the world, these meanings that emerge from the side disciplines that have come into the world um, and um, sort of, suffused all of our the way that we talk about ourselves the way we talk about our relationships the way that we relate to institutions even the way that we construct our social movements have been like sort of inundated with the language of psychology and the the belief systems of psychology and the understandings of social problems that come from psychology it's a very new kind of thing um and i had been part of that world and i just thought well that's the way things are that's that's just reality that's how you're supposed to construct a movement um that's how you're supposed to construct a grievance that kind of thing And in terms of like happiness discourses, I remember that I used to read like self-help books and that kind of thing because I, you know, I probably, you seem to be about my age, maybe a little bit younger, Um, but you, um, you know, growing up doesn't come with a rule book, you know, tradition is gone and all of these old categories have lost their meaning. So for me, you know, being 19, 20 years old, it was like, well, what am I supposed to be? You know, I say to my dad, like, well, what should I do? And he'd be like, Ashley, you just be happy, you know, whatever makes you happy. I'm like, no, no, no. (laughs) You tell me, what am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to do? What does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be a man? I have no flipping idea. And we've destroyed all these categories, all these old traditions, not saying that that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that Everything that used to give a guide for life is gone. So how do you find these things? Well, well, how do you find rules? How do you know how to live? Well, we find it in self-help books. We find it in like 10 steps to a better you. And so that's what I was doing. And I was miserable because I was I was constantly focused on myself. I was obsessed with my feelings. And I was always thinking, like, I remember I put affirmations on my wall, like, um, don't save up your happiness for the future. Be happy now. And I was like, oh, like why can't I just be happy, you know? And I couldn't because I was so focused on myself and my own psychology because that was the be all and the end all of everything. I thought that was the whole point. Um, And so to learn that this had a history and this is not how people used to relate to the world, you know, reading Christopher Lash, you know, we've lost our sense of belonging to historical time. This idea that people didn't used to live as though they had one life life to live. They lived as though they were living their parents' lives and their children's lives blew my mind, absolutely blew my mind. Um, And also I was a bit angry because I was thinking, you know, I had been lied to more or less about the, about human nature it was always the answer to everything anytime i knew, well why is it things like why are things like this well because of human nature or if you wanted to get real complex because on the savannah grasslands you know and they tell this just so story that explained everything um and so i i went into i went to go do a phd um, to uh, study happiness because as i was taking this class in my final year of university um, i was interested in studying the labeling of depression um because i had had this sort of you know personal experience of being like a 16 year old going to my uh, high school counselor because my grandmother had died and i was very upset about this and other things that were happening in my life at the time as you are when you're a teenager <laughs> and uh she was like not she wasn't listening to me she was ticking off a list of symptoms and she was like it's not you it's depression you have a chemical imbalance in your brain and at first i was like oh my god that is so oh, i felt better you know um it's not me it's my brain as so though there's like some separation there um but, all, but later on i started to think about it and i thought no i have the right to feel bad because what's happening to me is bad there's nothing wrong with me i i have a right to feel bad about this so that kind of led me to studying depression so and as as i was looking at the labeling of depression i stumbled upon this new at the time Um, area of psychology called positive psychology, where they supposedly were saying, oh, we shouldn't focus on deficits. Let's teach people how to be happy. And I was like, well, I thought that once you solve problems, people could do that on their own. But now we even need professionals to do that. Like, it's like, it, it, it seemed to me to be expanding the purview of psychology, even not just to those who are ill, but to everybody, everybody needs to be taught how to be happy. And I found that a bit troubling. And I worried that it would increase that kind of excessive self-attention that I had experienced when I was younger. I think, sorry, I'm going on, I'm rambling, but just to say one more thing, um, my undergraduate degree was in anthropology and sociology. And I always think to really understand something, you need to feel what it's like to believe it, you know, like the kind of um, uh, emic, ethnographic perspective, the, um, the insider perspective. And I feel like I I, I could understand it, because I had felt it myself, I had felt what it was like to live within that paradigm and to believe it before I came out of it and started to question it. And I think some of the best theorists are like that, you know, they the best critiques of the side disciplines were psychiatrists themselves or, or are psychiatrists or psychologists themselves, because they are in it, they know it, and then they, they start to think critically about it. And, and they know it so well, better than I do. Anyway, so that's how I came to this whole, whole study.
1: No, I personally think that's very inspiring, and I happen to know that uh, a lot of people in our generation uh, have very, very similar trajectories. You know, just to kind of speak for myself, um, I can empathize with a lot of what you're talking about. You know, I was 16 years old. I like post-punk. You know, I'd listen to, you know, Nirvana and Joy Division and Radiohead and all these different bands. And, of course, I'd go around to my parents. It was like, nobody understands me, you know. Uh, yeah, I was obsessed with Kierkegaard for a little while, and, you know, he famously said, you know, my melancholy is my most faithful mistress. Uh, I love her very much in return, right? Um and I remember my parents would respond precisely by giving me some of those self health, health books. Um, the one that I got was The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Teens. I can't remember where I got that. I think it was like 17, 16, because they're like, oh, this will help solve your problems. Uh, but there was this real sense, you know, uh, even on my part, yeah, that this was something to be dealt with pathologically rather than socially. And it was only later that I came to some of the social psychological literature of the sort that you're talking about uh, that actually suggested that there's very much a political dimension to a lot of these things. Uh, I think Eric Fromm was the first person I read in that regard, although there were a lot of others. Um, but I wanted to read a quote from your book that I think summarizes what you said um, very succinctly uh, and then maybe ask you to elaborate on some of the themes. So this is at the opening of chapter two where you say, happiness claims are bound up with historical and cultural discourses that condition their range of meaning. Uh, while it has been customary to trace the history of happiness to ancient Greece or to some universal or eternal human quest, I contend that the current interest has far more recent origins. There are many reasons why happiness became a plausible and appealing description of the problems facing society, and I think that there's a lot to that. I'm just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about why contemporaneously uh, this has become such a fixation in our society, You know, however you want to describe it, late capitalist society, neoliberal society, uh, my favorite, you know, neologism is, you know, postmodern neoliberal society, but however you want to characterize it.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a temptation to do like a vulgar materialist analysis and people do that. You know, so you take the phenomenon ready made. Oh, we're talking a lot about happiness must be because we're so unhappy and the political economy or the economy ready made. And then you just jam those two things together. We're so unhappy because capitalism makes us unhappy. And it's a nice story, but that's not what happened. Um, And this is why you have to be very, very careful. Um, All history has to be studied afresh. I don't know if that's a line from Hegel via Marx, but uh, it's a good one. Um, basically, I I, I, don't, I didn't sort of when I I saw these headlines in the newspaper all the time, right? Like uh, unhappiness is Britain's worst social problem, for example, was a big one. Um, why are we so unhappy? And, and everyone starts talking about happiness, circa you know two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Um, and instead of saying, well, like oh well, how many people are unhappy? How unhappy are they? Um, why are we so unhappy? I asked. Who says we're unhappy? When did it become powerful to frame claims about social issues in the language of happiness and unhappiness? What are they claiming? Who are these people? Where did you know, ideas don't just sort of emerge from the ether. So like suddenly there's like this critical mass of unhappiness and it just explodes in people's minds. Oh, we're unhappy. What actually happened was beginning in 1948, um, some social scientists began to do happiness surveys. And um, they were, you know, they typically ask people how happy they are on a scale of one to 10 or from not very happy to very happy. There's a few different ways that they do it. Um, But the real thing that happened. So they've been doing these surveys for a long time. But the big splash was when um, people began very specific people. Um, happiness economists, positive psychologists, and so on, um, began to take these happiness surveys and combine them with data with economic data, and that was the big claim that that really burst forth onto the scene into the public sphere of claims making. These sort of this became the banner of a concerted campaign to make happiness into a public issue, into a policy issue, into something that is taught in schools it was a it was a concerted agenda that formed around these claims um and the 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 claim was in spite of enormous economic growth in spite of huge increases in wealth in spite of increases in incomes whatever they would use a bunch of different monetary indicators we are no happier than we were when happiness surveys started so if you take a, if you look at the trend line for these happiness surveys it doesn't change very much people on a scale of 1 to 10 people rate themselves as, as about a 7 And different countries will rate themselves differently as well, but it doesn't change much. Um, And now that on its own doesn't say a whole lot, but you plot that on a graph with GDP and you've got a really interesting story to tell. In spite of huge increases in wealth, we are no happier. So what's all this money for? And that became this really compelling claim. It had this, a, a, a campaign is really likely to make an impact to affect policy, to become institutionalized if it appeals to the left and right at the same time, for various reasons, so it had a left wing kind of ring to it. Yeah, man, money doesn't make you happy. Like, Capitalism is all about consumerism, especially at this time. You know, there wasn't... I was
1: looking in the Beatles song. You know, uh, money can't buy me love. You know what I mean? Yeah, From yeah. The 1960s, stuff. <laughs> Has yeah. this
0: like countercultural appeal to it, but also it fits really well with conservative ideas because. Um, it's this, you know, the Protestant ethic, you know, you, you, the good capitalist doesn't consume. He plows everything back into production. Um, capitalists don't want their workers to consume a whole bunch. No, because they're going to ask for higher wages. So you want your workers to be ascetic. You want somebody else's workers, preferably in another country to be profligate. Um, and so it worked there too, right? You can well imagine, cause you don't go on a picket line, like pay me less, give me well-being Wednesdays. I want mindfulness training. You're like, F that noise. I want, Uh, I want higher wages. And there's actually this wonderful um, story that I came across when I was doing my research. So I gathered all these claims together to try to make sense of what these people were claiming. And it's very, it was a, it was an agenda put forward by positive psychologists to make like happy institutions, um, happy education, happy architecture. Like they had nodes. And they actually specifically met in Mexico yearly, I think it was yearly, um, to like try to bring people from around the world to spread this these claims. So it's, it's, these ideas were like, it was a very concerted campaign to make it a big deal so there was this idea that money doesn't make you happy right um and so this became like the the big claim and that's why it became so powerful it you know it appeals to both the left and the right for various reasons um and so but, but it was also like a political project on the part of these of this group of people so it spoke to this kind of countercultural air um and you know it sounded It sounded convincing. It sounded radical. And this was a time when this is this uh, initially sort of burst forth onto the scene in like 1998. And then someone really took hold of it and made it into a a concerted project in 2003. um, Richard Layard in the UK. Um, And then more more and more books get written about it and that kind of thing. Um, And the... Um, the idea is that, you know, a huge range of social problems can be solved by reorienting to the true meaning of happiness. Um, and, you know, it's it's radical, it's revolutionary, but it also has a historical element to it. Right. Since time immemorial, people have once pursued happiness. It's in the Declaration of Independence, even though that's not what they meant. Um, it's. So it has this—it had this like radical ring to it at a time when big ideas were on the wane. You know, where there is no alternative to capitalism has become like a, a popular prejudice, um, and so it seemed to provide an alternative, and it spoke to the left and right equally. And so these are part of the reasons. Obviously, in the whole book, I explain all the different reasons, um, but that's part of the reason why it became so powerful. And it wasn't because suddenly because of capitalism in some unmediated way, we all just became very unhappy. In fact, even according to the claims makers themselves, we are just as happy as we were in 1948, which is interesting because you'd think like the whole like cultural pessimism that we have, we think we're all, why are we so miserable? But actually we rate ourselves just as happy as we ever uh, we ever have. And that's, there's a lot of debate about why that is. It might be like cultural feeling rules, you know, like when you say like, how are you mm-hmm. saying fine, thanks. It's like, oh, geez, people keep saying they're fine, hmm. <laughs> okay. or are we like, you know, as long as you're not starving, you know, you rate yourself about a six.
1: Oh yeah, I, I wanted to just say one thing, and then I'll let uh, Victor ask his question. Just uh, what um, your criticism reminded me a little bit, and maybe you'll push back against this comparison, or maybe you'll embrace it. Uh, but it was the comment that uh, Slava Zizek made uh, around very similar points. Uh, because one of the things that he points out is you have a movie like The Pursuit of Happiness that presents one image of what the good life is about. Uh, it's a very conservative image. You know, there's Will Smith, like you said. Uh, he works hard. He's thrifty. He looks after his son, uh, eventually becomes a big shot in the world of finance, and he becomes, quote unquote, happy, per se, right? And that's a very conservative way of conceptualizing happiness. Uh, you juxtapose that with the more kind of new age conception of happiness, uh, that I think in some ways you're criticize that you're critical of, um, or you might well, just call it the new left conception, uh, which is you know actually it's capitalism that makes us unhappy um, because you know we're driven to be hyper competitive, we're not able to actually spend time with our kids like uh, they're like presented in the movie, uh, you know we can't actually form meaningful social relations. Um, and you point out that there's a kind of romantic critique. Um, that has deep roots there. Uh, And so what we need to do is not necessarily get rid of capitalism per se, but moderate it, right? Spend more time with our kids, reconnect with spiritual traditions. Uh, And Zizek is also very critical uh, of these kinds of injunctions, right? Saying that in many ways, this just reifies different forms of ideology. So I really embraced uh, the kind of commentary you're making in that respect, because I think he's absolutely right about that uh, in the sense that uh, neither of these are paths that we should be pursuing on the left. Neither the conservative path or this kind of new left approach. Uh, but anyway, go ahead, Victor.
2: So I think, you know, I, we I did grow up around the same time as you. And I remember, you know, the self-esteem, uh, self-esteem being an aspect in, you know, when I was in primary and grade school. And, um, I, you know, in the book, you focus on the signifier of happiness. And That, you know, like after you wrote that book, I think there's maybe been a bit of a shift and there's like an oscillation in like the dominant signifier when it comes to like our happiness. And I sometimes and I feel like and actually it inspired us to do an episode a few months ago about happiness, because I actually may had made this observation before I was familiar with your work that it seems like now what's in vogue is like mental health. Is like the, the new signifier. And I, I was curious and it came up in I know it came up in one of your chapters, but I was wondering if what do you how do you see the relationship between happiness as a social problem and the semiotics of happiness? And then like now what we might see is the semiotics of like mental health. And I feel like there's more in pop culture and there's more of a of like a kind of push to talk about uh, our mental health issues It's to make it to make everybody comfortable to talk about uh, how sad they are, although it's always framed uh, from the angle of mental health.
0: Yeah. So you, you, you should talk about it as much as possible. So long as you recognize it's always a medical issue um, and how dare you think it's anything else. Um, but yeah, so in terms of the shift from different signifiers, um, I, yeah, I definitely grew up in the self-esteem movement myself when I was 10 years old, I gave a speech, you know, do you, you, are from Canada. Are speech competitions like a normal thing? Cause I talk about speech competitions. Everyone's like, what do you want about?
1: Oh yeah. We, we did like, I think three of them uh, when I was in grade six. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I used to be really good at them. <laughs> and, I, and I would always, I'd always choose something I knew the adults would really like. So I'd pick like Jesus because I went to Catholic school, right? <laughs> so I'd be like, I'm very passionate about this. You know, I knew exactly how to pull the strings. And one year I did self-esteem not because I thought that self-esteem was like so important. I had no, you know, I vague sense of what it meant. I could spout everything you want to know about it, but I had no feel for it, but because I knew when I talked about it, the adults all got very excited. Oh yes, this is very important. So I gave this whole speech where I like ripped off Jack Canfield and (laughs) anyways, um, and I still remember it to this day, but, um, Yeah, it's like self-esteem was like the really big deal, right? And we're going to teach self-esteem in schools and it's going to, they said it was going to be a social vaccine it was going to inoculate children from future problems and now let me tell you it did not inoculate me from future problems or like all the troubles that young girls experience you know body image and all that sort of thing because there are much bigger issues going on than like looking at yourself in the mirror and saying you're worth it um but it's it's interesting because the story that self-esteem told was um is very similar to the story that's told by happiness. And in fact, I've got the book right here. There's this fantastic book, I think it's out of print now, The Myth of Self-Esteem by John P. Hewitt. And the subtitle is Finding Happiness and Solving Problems in America. And this book was published in 1998. And what's interesting is that there was this slippage even then between self-esteem and happiness. And I started to notice that these signifiers, they they tend to do that. So self-esteem gradually slipped into the language of happiness. Happiness gradually slipped into the language of well-being. Well-being slipped into mental health. Um, and I i started to identify as I kind of kept taking these samples from public discourses and social media and that kind of thing. I noticed that um, they go through these these cycles. They're not quite cycles, but of... Um, um, adoption, expand. Sorry, discovery, adoption, expansion, and exhaustion. So this new new signifier is discovered, and it's um, you know put forward with a huge amount of fanfare. You know it's going to be a social vaccine. It's going to solve all these problems, and it's always the same story that's told. First, you must promote X, self-esteem, happiness, well-being, mental health, whatever, before we can ever even think about solving Y. Right. So why is like some intractable issue? And with self-esteem, it was like, you know, it was everywhere in the feminist movement, for example. How can we ever deal with patriarchy if we do not have the self-efficacy as women to stand up against men? Right? So it's this nice story, uh, you, you come in and you posit your new discourse in between some intractable problem. No, 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 before we ever surmount that, we have to have a seminar on self-esteem. We have to make sure that our institutions teach self-esteem. How can we ever overcome X or Y if we don't promote X? It's a very, very common formulation. You see it all the time. When I was doing my coding, it was always first promote X, first promote X, you just saw all the time. Um, and then it's so it, that is a very powerful story, it's very simple story, it's a magic bullet, right? It's a it's a social vaccine, but it's a magic bullet, it's gonna solve all kinds of problems. And people adopt it. Everything becomes a nail, right? When you when you've got a hammer, everything becomes a nail. And then they start to, as it gets adopted in all these institutions, they start to expand it, you know, because they you you adopt it in, you know, self-esteem gets adopted in God knows where. Um like businesses every kind of business expands it and education and well what if we could do it like this and we could solve this problem and uh, and then it just it starts to lose all meaning it's well self-esteem also means this and I was just in a (laughs) so what happens when you do this kind of research is people will mistake you for a happiness expert so every now and then I get invited onto these panels and then I I just disappoint everyone and horrify them and (laughs) they try and it shot me up, cut off my mic. I was just sitting in this on this panel, these like innovators. Oh, I shouldn't say this. They're very nice people. I'm sure they're lovely. Um, but they were like, um, you know, if only we could promote happiness. But what does happiness mean? Happiness means psychological safety. Right. And I was like, "Ooh, this is a new one. I haven't heard this one before because her shtick was psychological safety. Right. And she's trying to link it to the concern with happiness. If you care about happiness, you're going to care about my thing, too. Right. So they start to expand it. And then happiness comes to be expanded and expanded. expanded. So it means everything. And if it means everything, it means nothing. And then people get exhausted by it. Oh, happiness. Enough already. Shut up. In fact, there was actually a headline in Newsweek. Happiness, enough already. (laughs) Like you get, it's not novel anymore. And obviously it can never make good on its promises, but that criticism is made right from the very beginning. Um, But why it exhausts is because it gets expanded everywhere. Its novelty is lost. And then we're hungry for the new thing. But each round creates a space in institutions, right? So you've got these self-esteem experts. You've got all these people who are writing these books or involved in the training programs or in in these new services that are created. And they're hungry for the next thing. And so then the next thing comes and they're there, they're ready to adopt it. And each, and each cycle, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So self-esteem made very similar claims to the happiness movement. It's gonna be a social vaccine. Probably one of the best examples of this is Martin Seligman. Um, He wrote a book called The Optimistic Child where he was talking about, um, you know, self-esteem is a social vaccine. It's going to, you know, stop children from having, if you give them self-esteem when they're young, they're going to not have problems when they're older. Then he writes a book in in the early 2000s about happiness. It's all self-esteem means everything. It solves everything. So it ultimately solves nothing. What we should really be talking about is happiness, which is going to inoculate children (laughs) from future problems. It's the same kind of story. Um, And then uh, the you know as happiness starts to expand it has some limits i talk about this in the book in the later chapters it has some limits to how far you can expand it and people start going uh, why i'm sorry it's psychological safety I'm, i i thought it was me in a field full of daisies i thought it was a smile from my child you know and so it, it it expands so far that it bursts and so people will use different vocabularies and you see over time people start to say happiness and well-being happiness and well-being happiness and well-being and then it becomes well-being and mental health because well-being was a more expansive category. It allowed people to bring in all sorts of different things because you couldn't really say like a healthy diet makes you happy. Like pizza on a Friday night with my husband and beer make me happy, you know, like, um, and like just the kind of connection that people have to their everyday speaking, but you could talk about well being, right. And then you can tell people what to eat. Um, and so it, it was more open to all of these different things and then mental health, which is what I'm looking at in the last chapter of my new book now, um, uh, which has been on the back of my neck for like years and years I'm not finished it I'm supposed to finish it now <laughs> but I'm still working on this last last chapter because mental health is so difficult to understand and piece together I think that it came from this expansion but it's not the same story and that's what I find interesting because self esteem was like a magic bullet happiness was a magic bullet when you start to get into well being and mindfulness there's a sense of There was always this sense of cultural pessimism, like, oh, we can't solve these problems. Like, at the end of the day, let's just try to make ourselves happy. But within the mental health discourse, it's very, very pessimistic. Um, It's not even about solving problems. It's about living within the problems. And, you know, if you and I part of the research that I was doing was I was looking at um, student newspapers, I was looking at student newspapers from the 1920s and 1930s. And it was, it amazed me how the young people there, they really thought that they were going to radically change the world in a fun, in a fundamental way. And they knew what they they knew how they were going to do it. And they had like debates between communists and Christian conservatives. And they were like, no, communism is the way to go or Christian conservatism is the way to go. And they really thought we were on the precipice here. And of course it's the 1930s, right? There was like the last, the last stand for these big ideas. And then in the late 1940s, you have this. It's so amazing. Right after the Second World War, there's a very palpable sense of exhaustion. All of that debate is gone. You know, Daniel Bell said in like 1950, you know, this is the end of ideology. We've reached the end of ideology. This is it. And you think like, wow, in 1950, geez, that's premature. But that was it was actually that was the feeling at the time um and so these these young people were like all of a sudden you see 1948 people start 1950 they start talking about like the doors perception and let's like go do psychedelic drugs that kind of thing and it it really becomes sort of internalized and you can see that now toward the present it's this kind of this sense that our sphere of influence is very small and you can see that it has gradually receded and got smaller and smaller and smaller to the point where even what's in your own damn head you no longer have control over And that is supposed to be like a progressive idea. Like 1930s, it was like, we're going to control the economy. We're going to like radically control the whole, we're going to take the reins of the future and the world and everything. And now it's like, oh, aren't we all a bit ill? Aren't we all like, you know, we just have to sit back and observe our thoughts because they're so out of control. And let's just live within the maelstrom, learn how to have a sense of harmony within the maelstrom, that's like actually a quote from Jon Kabat-Zinn, this mindfulness guru. So it's from like magic bullets to living within the maelstrom. So it's not just a cycle, it's not just a repetition. I think in each time you kind of think about it like a sublation in Hegelian terms, like this idea of like each one kind of negates what came before it, but also brings it to a higher level. It's like mental health kind of subsumes and criticizes everything that came before it, but then takes that the problem the problem of the self the problemization of the self in relation to society to like the ultimate conclusion where we're it's really amazing just how disorganized people are um are, are portrayed as being like in mindfulness discourse it's like you have these ceos like it's so wonderful that we're all learning about mind control and nobody that's really weirded out by that
2: i'm really glad you said that because uh you know that was kind of the sense i got about um mental health and like kind of there's a much much more of a negativity associated with it and like i feel it palpably because one of the topics in the episode that we did about happiness was you know it's it's weird because i've just noticed that like i will admit i'm i feel like i'm maybe uncommonly contented person naturally and i sometimes feel like um it would be it's a little bit um unfashionable to admit that because i feel like the dominant culture is so much talking about like the mental health issues you have and the mental disturbances that you have that it's it seems very out of vogue to talk about happiness it's almost cringe to talk about to use that older word now everyone's mental health everything has much more of a negative spin on it but i did want to ask like how you link sort of these views you have in analyzing uh the semiotics of happiness and the shifts in the way there's um you know these narratives have an effect on our lives and how does that connect to um, your broadly, I think, Marxist perspective. And I know that you said uh, in the beginning of your book, and I watched a couple of your interviews, um, but I think in the introduction of your book, you said something about um, how, you know, the construction of these different um, discourses, um, right, can have a limiting effect on human possibilities. Um, as And it makes us think that these things, like at least the narratives um, and the, the semiotics, whether it's about mental health or happiness, gives people a sense that these things are like sort of eternal or stable. Um, and I guess the reason I, I brought up that quote and the way I maybe I would link it to Marxism is because, you know, I sometimes think that right now neoliberal, the neoliberal ideology or kind of like the liberal ideology is kind of interestingly um, about telling us that anything is possible. Right. Like like capitalism, it's like be whoever you want to be, be whatever identity you want to be. And it's almost like this push on us to to find your true self. And capitalism is like the right marketplace to do that. So I guess. Um, and I think people, a lot of people argue that that pressure of, the, of choice, I think Zizek has talked about like, kind of the, the nauseating effect that all these choices we're confronted with have on us. Um, and I wonder if there's a tension or a link between like, the sorts of possibilities that you don't want to be limited from a Marxist perspective versus this sort of story that capitalism and neoliberalism tells us about like you know that there that anything is possible that we can be we can find whatever true self we choose to have right from a liberal perspective so they're probably different but i don't know i don't know if uh if you get the drift of the the sort of connect broad connection i'm trying to make
1: i actually just wanted to follow that up because um one of the things that i wanted to say is that uh I've often felt that one of the worst things to emerge uh, from the kind of trends that you're talking about uh, is the kind of injunction to manage your mental health uh, as a real imperative. And I think a lot of this is associated also with the emergence of things like uh, millennial capitalism uh, and the kind of attitudes that are associated with that. Uh, Because the way that I've understood it is that or experienced it is that people are far more willing to let you talk about your mental health uh, than they might have been in previous generations. And I do see that as a positive development. Uh, But it almost always comes with an imperative, which is that you are supposed to manage yourself in order to replicate the kind of pathologies that we think are appropriate at this given time. Uh, And not only are you supposed to do that, uh, but it's also economically necessary for you to do so, uh, which is why your employer uh, can now start taking interest in your mental health uh, and do things kind of like what you're talking about with the boss, right? Who's like, I'm going to be here, I'm working, you know, you're not just going to go work a nine to five any longer because it's important for me to help manage your psychology in a certain sense, because we want our workers to be upbeat and productive. Right. Uh, And in some ways, my response to that is almost a a kind of Gen X attitude of becoming very cynical uh, towards a lot of this happiness discourse uh, and to suggest that it's just a way of evading, uh, taking responsibility for the construction of a different kind of social destiny uh, that might actually resolve some of the material problems that we're facing right now. But anyway, I was just wondering if you could speak to that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I mean, obviously, with the rise of, like, emotionality at work, I mean, I feel that like this is, like, an ultimate form of control because if you think about how, like, obviously, if you want to take a Foucaultian perspective, a lot of power, if you want to look at, like, a microcosm of power in society, you can look at a prison. And how is power exercised in a prison? Do they beat people into submission? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, they might do that. But the more progressive power is by... You, you control people by having them control themselves, right? You are, you know, you emote and you go to these therapy sessions and that sort of thing. And it's at least, but here's the thing, it's actually not that progressive because in the past, at least, you know, when you get beat by somebody, your brain is still yours. Your mind is still yours. You know, if you, if somebody beats you into submission, you can still have, you know, uh, your, 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 your mind that says this is wrong this is unjust whatever you can have that part of you that's that nobody can like hit with a baton but when you are invited to like emote and to display all your deepest feelings about something you know the and then you're invited to adopt this script or this narrative that brings them back in line with the institution the control is total You know, I would much rather have that freedom, that tiny little freedom to go to work, do my thing and say a subtle fuck you under my breath. And that's mine, you know, but now I have to go in and and not like I shouldn't kind of name somebody, but someone I know sent me this horrifying picture of like these stickers that were handed out at her work with all these emotions on them. And you were supposed to change your sticker throughout the day to advertise how you're feeling. And oh, it was God. like angry, That's sad, like the worst nightmare I could possibly have. <laughs> horrifying, absolutely horrifying. Um, and the, everybody, all the workers were like d- weirded out by this. And they're like, um, the, you know, the aspirational ones were like, uh, after that, you know, I'm going to be in management. They're like, oh, this is so great. And management thought it was wonderful. They were, oh, they were breaking down barriers to, you know, the stiff upper lip and all these sorts of things. Um, And everyone else was like, really weirded out in this way that they couldn't quite explain. Because they, at least if you, you know, you go in, you do your thing and the capitalist doesn't have any, access to your brain, right? Now, not only do you have to be exploited, you have to enjoy it. Um, And again, on one of these panels that I was on, I was sitting there with my mouth hanging open because I couldn't believe that nobody found this weird. Um, They were like, oh yeah, what we can do now is with mobile phones, we can actually track people's emotions and we can see based on their eye movements and (laughs) we can see how they're feeling at any point in the day. And I was like, what? <laughs> That's horrible. But how is it justified? It's justified on the basis of breaking down barriers. Let's all talk about our emotions. Um, and uh, let's, oh, and another one that, here's one that they stick, a uh, stick that they beat people with huh, is uh, suicide, right? So they threaten people. If we don't do this, we're going to, you know, people are going to commit suicide. And this is, you know, have you ever read the book, The Circle? Um, in that novel, that was how, like, the, the tracking devices, right? So it's like the, the thing, or, like, microchipping people, the, the quintessential tinfoil hat thing, the state wants to microchip you. Well, how did they introduce microchips? By saying um, it's going to stop uh, little girls from being abducted and we'll be able to find people, you know? So it's always through this kind of moral crusade that um, gradually our kinds, of, our kinds of freedoms are lost. And the freedom to be miserable is something that is actually really important. Um, and to have that misery and to be able to articulate that misery with other people is something that's gone now. Um, because you know, you think about the word stress, oh, I'm stressed out. When did this become, become powerful in common parlance? In the 1960s. And was it because suddenly the world became much more stressful in the 1960s? No, absolutely not. I mean, think about what it was like during the industrial revolution, people's limbs getting ripped off on a regular basis, like children falling into machines people working 18 hour days, like Karl Marx and capital has all these vignettes of like people forced to work around the clock before they'd like literally drop dead. You think like, why didn't they use the word stress? Because there was another narrative that existed at that time where you could gather together and, and demand rights through collective social movements. The trade union movement was on the wane. um, And you can actually see that the, this huge rise in disability as the, um, as the uh, union movement starts to disappear. And so we have this kind of individualized narrative and this language of emotion, the language of mental health speaks to this kind of individualized narrative. Your problems are you. You are feeling bad today. You have this issue. You can um, carry out these practices like they even have like biohacking now where it's like companies are like, oh, you can play with the lights and um, get the ambience exactly right to make sh- to make people not pissed off. Like so, But they'll also like invite you to do it to yourself. Like you biohack yourself. And that so that you don't feel like you're a hamster in a flipping treadmill, you know. <laughs> um, and so I think that this is it. That's Through some really weird stuff, I have to say. Like that's yeah. And me. they will actually say mind control because they say that we can't control our own minds, so they're going to teach you how to do it. And people are like, okay, yeah. Mm. And this, you know, you ask me how do I I connect this to Marxism? Because we do. That is the most fundamental thing about being a human being by working on the world you work on yourself what is human nature we create our own nature that is the most quintessential aspect of marxism because it allows us to recreate a new world and recreate whole new ways of being it's not our mind is not like the world around us is not just a projection of human nature it changes and as we do things differently we change our own nature we are fundamentally different today than we were a thousand years ago it, you, you people wouldn't have an existential crisis in the year 800. Oh, I'm 16 years old. Who am I? What am I going to be in the world? No, you knew that because you saw what your mother did. You saw what your father did, and you're just going to live that life. But because we now have all these different choices, we do have an existential crisis. Um, But that is because we have that ability as human beings to choose who we are. Now, we're in a context in which we don't have a robust kind of subjectivity to deal with those kinds of choices, right? So if you're going to choose who you are, everything up to you is a choice. You also have to stand behind that and say, I have chosen to be this Way. This is the path that I have taken, and therefore, when it all goes to shit, it's kind of my fault. Or when it all goes to shit, it's probably some deeper kind of structural thing, and you just got spat at the bottom. well that's kind of hard—a hard thing to to understand. But I think the reason why this all bothers me is because human subjectivity is variable, and what happens with these kinds of discourses is a very um, static, very weak, very vulnerable subjectivity is posited as progressive. But we need a powerful subjectivity, we need a a changing subjectivity if we are to fundamentally change the world, if we are to take the reins of history. And like you, Mark says, we like in the past, we, you know, everything's sort of like chaos and now it is in the anarchy of production and so on, but we will make history in the full light of reason. And, we're, and capitalism is bringing us, you know, the veil is lifted and we're getting closer and closer to the truth of the human hands on history. We have to realize that it is us that have done everything. We have created religions. We have created these institutions. We can recreate them. And we can make them different. And all of these discourses invite us to think, no, 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 we're all just a bit messed up, aren't we? It's so hard to control our minds. And, you know, the government really needs you needs to lock the cookie box or whatever they say with nudge discourses, that kind of thing. We're just your better self because you're weak. And isn't it so progressive to accept that?
2: Well, that leads right into a question I have about, about, um, you know, so if we're, if we're going to be critical of, you know, the, these kind of structural explanations where we want to like blame capital or culture for, for our feelings. And then we also, you know, want to be critical of medicalizing kind of like internal chemical balances or other kind of like personal responsibility narratives for how we're feeling. Um, you know, I guess, I would, I'd be curious about how you'd respond to people who would say, well, maybe that leads to like kind of a mental health quietism where it's like we can't talk about anything. And then I guess that leads to the natural question, which is, well, what do you think is the right way to talk about mental disturbances? And I know that you're inspired by Ian Hacking's like, you know, the looping effect, right? And that, that does lead to like a very kind of uh, a difficult puzzle where you're like, you know, if we start to over label something, it like has an effect and it's almost like we're making it real. So given that, I guess, how do you see the way forward to talk about something that Clearly, all of us have some sort of intuitive uh, experience with what I don't know, mental disturbance or whatever we want to call it, uh, unhappiness or whatever. Yeah.
1: I also want to follow up and say that I think uh, a lot of what you're talking about really came to the fore uh, in 2020, because I remember one of the objections that Republicans made uh, to actually giving people fifteen hundred dollars a month uh, in order to stay at home was oh, without people working, uh, suicide rates are going to increase and drug rates are going to increase. Uh, We don't want that because people need the kind of meaning they get from going to work every single day. Uh, And there was really this kind of perverse quality to it, of course, because they knew that if more people go to work, more people are going to die. But that was still preferable to undertaking what's really a very minor change uh, to the economic status quo, just giving people a month, uh, like money a month to stay home. Uh, But even that was a bridge too far uh, for the people who are caught up. Uh, in these kinds of justificatory logics.
0: Well, with that last bit, um, it's a bit difficult because I think when you're in the United States, it's easy to get drawn into this idea that the discourse of capitalism or the ideology of capitalism that we need to um, fight against is the kind of obvious one, like the Coca-Cola, be happy thing is like, nobody is like, oh, I'm going to buy this Coke and it's going to make me so happy nobody flipping thinks that like, you know, so you're, you're, it's, it's, it's kind of like straw man to begin with, but also you still have this kind of um, you still have capitalists in the U S who are like these kind of like old fashioned um, productivists, um, which, you know, I think they're really, really on the wane. Um, Cause there's this kind of like fight between within the capitalist class, you have like the people who are like quite progressive in the sense of like economically progressive. And so they think like, oh, we're going to produce tons and tons of stuff. And that's going to like rising tide will lift all boats, that kind of thing. But the real the people who are really in the know, the people who are really progressive in like the liberal sense, they are like you I, when I again, when I sit on these panels with rich people, like people with money, I have to actually tell them the purpose of business is profit. And they get very uncomfortable with that. No, no, it's not. It is about all of these different things. We have goals. And I say, yeah, OK, you can have all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But if you don't make a profit, you're going to go out of business. OK, well, maybe that's true, but it's profit and all of this stuff. And yes, OK. But if you don't make a profit, screw all that other stuff because you're going to go out of business. Right. And so there's this enormous push to like deny that the purpose of capitalism is to make more money. It is. It is. And that's the good thing about it. There's me being a heretic. That is the good thing about capitalism because it creates a a basis of abundance that the world that could feed the world many times over that if we could figure out how to harness for human beings is the basis of a new and much better society. And this is why if you read the Grundrisse Notebook 7, it's wonderful, I recommend everybody read it because Marx is absolutely giddy about this. And he says, the the uh, basis of wealth on the, on uh, sorry, the creation of wealth on the basis of the exploitation of human labor appears as a miserable foundation um, uh, in light of this new one that's being created by industry itself. Why like capitalism is creating, it is abolishing exploitation to create a much better world. So these prog- like progressive, economically progressive capitalists, they have no idea that they are creating the basis of communism, which is why people think that I'm a confusing figure because I love a capitalist who will be honest about profit. The ones that freak me out are the ones who will deny that because capitalism is contradictory. It's not just like, oh, growing, growing, yay, everybody's rich. If that was what capitalism did, what would be the problem? Capitalism is also tends towards stagnation. The thing that creates wealth is also the thing that creates stagnation. Um, So, um, you know, in the Communist Manifesto, Marx talks about it like the capitalist is like the, the wizard or the sorcerer who's unable to control the powers he's conjured up from the, netherworlds, uh, the netherworld. And this thing that was once a progressive force for humanity begins to hold us back. That it becomes, its the thing that creates wealth starts to hold back the creation of wealth. And so there are people who see this, however stupidly, they understand that this is what's happening. So economic growth uh, is slowing down, relatively slowing down it's very hard to find profitable avenues for investment and if you are not honest if you will if you're like a horrible person and you want to hold not a horrible person but like you you know horrible ideologically you want to hold on to this system just for the sake of holding on to this system which is unforgivable then you will say well who needs economic growth anyway too much consumption makes us discontent um who needs Profits. Maybe we can shift to something else within all of this. You know, they'll try to create this imaginary world where this isn't destruction, destructive. They'll try to harmonize things, or what Marx calls, they try to reconcile irreconcilables. So, like Mill, like um, the falling rate of profit was something that was widely recognized in, in, by early political economists. It wasn't, does the rate of profit fall? It was, why does it fall? And Mills tried to harmonize this. He said, well, maybe it's just a steady state to which capitalism is naturally advancing. And Marx says this is ridiculous. This the this steady state to which we are advancing is the twilight of the gods, the end of the world basically for capitalism because why would you invest if there's no return on investment? You know and and that's crisis for the rest of us, you know, when the economy fails to grow at a sufficient rate, you are the first to go, you are the first to lose your job, that, you know, you are embedded in that. Um, And so I think it's important to recognize, you know, you have this idea of like, oh, the capitalists, they want to make money, Da da da. It's a lot more complicated than that. Um, There are plenty of capitalists who are happy to get bailouts, to have us live in misery, to miserate us as much as possible, and to claim that they're being progressive by doing it. Oh, you know, Too much
2: consumption makes you unhappy anyway okay well i did i mean i did i did want to try to because because i think maybe you got a little bit caught up in matt's part of the question there because i still was hoping to get an answer on the question of you know whether or not being critical of the discourses of mental health leads to kind of like mental health quietism and like i guess how would you like what is the correct way or what do you think is the right way to talk about um mental health or mental disturbances without you know falling victim to the effects that you're being critical of that we can connect to like hacking's looping effect
0: much that is, is open to question. And then there's a big question of how much of it is our, our medicalization of distress. So it's not that we should stop talking about distress, but I think we should think twice about whether or not these things are medical issues. Have we basically medicalized a huge range of human reactions to conditions? And on top of that, it's not like this is what scares me about the idea of like emotion being a new kind of truth. It is so variable. Like you can convince people to feel all sorts of different ways. It's it's so malleable, right? Like with money or something like that, you can like measure it. Right. But with emotion, it's not like, like I can make you feel better about a shitty wage. Like that's scary. Right. Um, so I think we have to be careful about, you know, one medicalizing emotion and two we have to recognize that emotion is malleable it's not like oh this thing happens we feel this way cause and effect like we're lab rats or something like that in between event and subjectivity is a whole world of interpretation of culture of history and so on that determines or influences how you react to a particular situation and also like interpersonal things um and so it's it's not like oh, bad thing happens, everybody's gonna feel this exact way. It's it's not like that. So it's not like, oh, like capitalism is here and we are, it makes us feel bad and I don't want you to talk about that. It's like, well, we have to interrogate why we are being invited to conceive of the problems of capitalism largely as psychological issues. And actually it's not even, a, it's a terrible critique anyway because most people are fine. Like that's amazing to me, this horrible exploitative system and yet most people are fine. And in fact, Oscar Wilde says this in his famous essay, Soul of Man Under Socialism. The worst part part about slavery wasn't that it made people discontent. The worst part is that they didn't know they were discontent and had to be told of it by outsiders. (laughs) Like a horrible institution like slavery and many, when they were freed, bitterly regretted the situation. Partially because they were so free indeed, they were free to starve. Um, But That's that's the idea is that, discontent is not like this sort of um, as widespread as our kind of like pessimistic culture likes to think of it. And emotions are pretty malleable. I invite a much deeper, I wish, I want us to have a much deeper critique of capitalism that comes from, which has been lost and which has largely been supplanted by these kind of emotional critiques, which is based on economics, that is based on a, a critique of the internal workings of capitalism, which is why I like Marx so much, because he doesn't start with human psychology, he doesn't start with greed, he doesn't start with humans making mistakes. He starts with the very same things as the classical political economists did, the free-willing rational subject. And he points out how even if you are acting rationally, these things will happen. The crises will happen. It is the outcome of something within the system itself. And that is why I'm such a fan of Marxism because it is is a truly humanist discourse. You have all these like right-wingers who claim to hold the mantle for humanity. Like, oh no, humans have the ability to have free will. They don't really believe that. Because how can they how do they explain things when they go wrong? Ah, those people are idiots, you know. So immediately they they lose faith in human beings. They don't really believe in human subjectivity because they the only explanation when things go wrong is human subjectivity. Equilibrium economics needs some external thing to understand crisis. Uh, Marxist economics doesn't. It comes from the proper functioning of the system itself. And the other thing that um, I wanted to say. So what do we do? I think. I remember having a conversation with Edgar Cabanas, who's really, really good. I'm a big fan of him, and he's a psychologist. And I was very surprised by this. He he was, sort of shrugged his shoulders and he said, "I just don't think about my feelings very much." <laughs> and it was kind of the same the same um, feeling that I have huh? feeling the same kind of uh, um, idea that I've wound up with is I just don't really think about my feelings so much. Um, And it's not that I like suppress things because we have this ideology now of suppression. Oh, it must be deep down. It's going to explode. Right. The sort of repressive um, idea. But it's that because I'm focused on a project beyond myself, because I am passionate about trying to understand the world. And in that understanding, try to figure out a way to change it, to give human beings greater freedom, to remove the obstacles to freedom. And Because I believe that human beings, once we do that, they will be able to pursue their own happiness, however that, whatever that might be, in the sense of you have the freedom to do whatever you want to do. And I'm not going to tell you what you should want to do. I'm not going to tell you how you should find happiness. Saying, when you don't have to work for a capitalist, for like, I don't know how much percent of your existence i have to do math really quick but <laughs> a huge percentage of your existence wasted on some other assholes plan what would you do with your life I think all of our lives would be a lot a lot different and yeah maybe we would be miserable in different ways but it, that's you that's that's your own personal world i am interested in increasing the freedom of human beings um by removing the barriers to freedom that exist now and i and trying to recognize where we have those pathways of freedom that capitalism open up opens up and at the same time tries to shut down. Um, so focus on a project beyond yourself. And that actually comes from psychology, from Viktor Frankl, right? This idea that you pursue something beyond yourself, not because it makes you happy, but because it makes suffering worthwhile. And if you think that the ultimate goal of everything you do is to produce a feeling inside your head, you are always going to be disappointed. You're always going to be discontented because you cannot, by their nature, feelings are ephemeral. They, they, they slip away. The moment that you have it, it's gone. And that means that if that's your whole purpose in life, you're always going to be chasing something that can it never really exist because you can't hold on to it. And people say like, oh, money, blah, blah, blah. You, you can't take it with you yeah, but you can't, at least you can leave that behind (laughs) with your feelings. You can't leave them behind. They're gone when you're gone. With a project beyond yourself, something beyond yourself, it's there after you're gone, right? You can leave it behind. You can't take it with you, but you can leave it behind. And you do it because it matters and it's meaningful, not because it will make you happy.
1: Actually, I want to say uh, your last comment reminded me a lot of Simone de Beauvoir. She made a very similar point where she uh, stipulated that one of the biggest problems with the philosophy of subjectivity is precisely that it leads us to think that the only thing that matters is how it is that we feel about something, uh, and so life becomes a conscious like a constant effort to try to manage our feelings in one way, shape, or form. And it's only when we realize that we're actually very much other-directed creatures, uh, and that we find our significance in the relations that we uh, have with, uh, with different people, you know, whether our family, or friends, and so on, uh, that we become truly gratifying because uh, of the recognition that we get from them. Uh, but of course, that's very difficult under capitalism and under patriarchy. So that's why we need to reform those kind of systems. Right? Yeah,
0: I think the only time that I have any kind of misery is when I feel that my project may not go anywhere. <laughs> yeah. And I, yeah. I feel that, that that perhaps we will never move beyond this, that this possibility that we have, you know, this world of wealth and culture just beyond the horizon if we could just figure out how to take hold of it and generalize it we could we're almost there it's possible um we we can't figure out a way to get there and i then i feel deep deep dejection but i feel like that's like a kind of thing that's a a dejection that's connected to the world you know it's connected to other people um and the sort of broader project of humanity as opposed to me being like oh why can't I be happy about like my sitting on a prayer mat for 20 minutes a day why is this not fulfilling me (laughs) kind of thing not that there's anything wrong with that if that makes you if that makes you tick that's fine I I, my main issue with the whole meditation thing is that it's put forward as like a a solution to social problems you know it's the same kind of magic thing somehow some way if we could just promote x somehow we would do y um but yeah
2: Well, it sounds like, I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is, you know, those all these things are fine. It's more about like, how are you taking it up? Right. Because I think that the key, at least if I'm understanding you correctly, right, is, is are you taking that thing up as a project in your life? Right. And it's not this like thing uh that is uh, that you're doing because you think it's going to like solve some problem, like instrumentally or something in your mental health. Is it something that you're so I guess presumably it would be possible to take up yoga or these other things as like a project. Uh, if I'm not if I'm not misunderstanding. Yeah, like it. I go
0: to the gym and that kind of thing. I like, you know, I like to do that. Um I don't think that that's like the be all and the end all of my purpose. It is for right. my husband though, And he's like pretty contented guy. Like <laughs> right,
2: there, you, there you go. There you go. <laughs>
0: You know, I mean, it's it's to each it's, you know, to each their own. But if you do it like I know my friend does it because she believes it like increases endorphins and she's pretty like sad all the time. You know, she has no purpose in her life and she specifically goes to the gym and this instrumental way to increase endorphins. And I feel like that's kind of sad. But that I don't know. No, I'm more inter- i'm not I'm not totally I'm not that interested in kind of like individuals. I'm more interested in you know these sort of broader discourses and what they say about our social movements and that kind of thing. So when I say project in life, I mean like, you know, you know what I have in mind. I'm yeah, sneaking yeah. in Marxism. like <laughs> right. I'm sneaking in communism. but you know, everybody will have something different, you know,
2: yeah, for sure, for sure. So yeah, I did want to ask you about your RT article. So like for some of our listeners, right, a lot of them are American. So they may not know that in Kamloops, British Columbia, right, there was a discovery under a residential school where indigenous people, indigenous children were taught. There was, I think, over plus 200 plus bodies of children found, I think, with some sort of like radio um, technology. I'm not actually sure if they've done the digging yet, but I think that they they did identify like a bunch of what seemed like uh, children's bodies. And uh, you wrote an article about it and you said something in it that I thought was a pretty spicy take. Um, You said something like, you know, um, uh, so I'll I'll quote you. You said, as a Canadian indigenous person myself who grew up hearing stories uh, of the horrors of residential school, I too was outraged when I first heard about the misguided school assignment. But I've come uh, but I've since come to realize that the constant invitation to expound atrocity tales, the constant expansion of victimhood, the tendency to see every single indigenous person as a trauma as traumatized has a darker edge. So I wonder if you could talk about that darker edge and also maybe um, what do you think is the right way or or the uh, with your view, at least to talk about trauma and the effect that it has on us?
0: Stop fucking talking about trauma. Sorry. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a bit about the
1: response also to that article? Because like Victor's saying, I imagine there's got to be some people who were, shall we say, a little peeved uh, by, but really is a very innovative account of, uh, you know, how it is that people should respond to these kind of social historical problems. Like, look, okay,
0: when I hear these stories, and I know them because they're in my own family as well, um, yeah, it upsets me a lot. And I had to explain to my daughter, I'm going to cry. I had to explain to my daughter what happened, you know, and she said, you know, you know, I, I tried to explain to her and I said, you know, what the, what, the, what they did. Um, and then, you know, these bad things happen in the world, that kind of thing. Maybe I shouldn't have, but I was quite upset about it when I, when I saw it on, you know, when the, the story broke. Yeah, it is really upsetting. It's a horrible thing that happened. But the idea that every single Indigenous person is traumatized by this and has mental health problems, like they literally say this and they, you know, is used against us. First of all, it is incorrect. Not everybody went to residential schools. Not everybody's um, you know, not everybody's ancestors um had that kind of tough time. You know, some people actually had a, a, a pretty decent time. I know that's horrible, but I mean like I mean like when I say a decent time, I don't mean residential schools, although actually there are like apparently something like 10% of people that have positive stories about it. Now that's all, like it's absolutely horrible to say that because these were horrible, horrible institutions. But my point is, um, the whole idea of like, through some kind of thing, colonization that happened at some point in the past, every single generation is damaged, is just not true. And we don't say that about any other group in society. We say that about Indigenous people. And here's the thing, this is why it bothers me. Because when it comes to what's happening right now, which is um, what's called the Millennium Scoop, enormous numbers of children are being taken, still they're still doing it. Do you know why? Because we they claim that we're damaged. They claim that we, because of residential schools, because of colonialism, we have lost our ability to be mothers. That is exactly what they said when they took our kids and put them in residential schools. They said because we couldn't be mothers. The indigenous woman could not raise the liberal citizen. They're still saying that. The only thing is it sounds great because they're blaming themselves. They're, the, they're not even blaming themselves. They're blaming past governments. Um, so it's like a bad old government of the past that did all these terrible things. We're so sorry. And that is why you have problems today. So the I wrote a paper about this. It's not, it's just um, that RT article is literally my stream of consciousness when I was very angry when it first broke. Literally, I thought that the editor would edit it because there's like half sentences in there. I wrote it in a fit of rage. Um, And the editor was like, this is powerful. I'm going to print it as it is. And I was like, no, you might want to not do that. But I wrote a whole paper that is much more thought out where I go through all of these discourses and I explain how they function. But basically what they do is they, the uh, explicit source of problems in Indigenous communities now is past colonial governments. But the implicit uh, source of these problems is the damage to parents. So because of the past the actions of government we've damaged parents and now they truly in the past it wasn't true but now it is uh, now they truly are not able to take care of their children but this is actually a very old understanding of social problems and it's actually one of the the understanding of social problems that influenced the idea of residential schools in the first place called social pathology which basically says that that um people individuals are pathological and they um if we could like kind of go in and fix them and give them the right kind of education, we would solve their social problems. So the source of social problems is the pathological individual. So the organism is healthy, that society is healthy, and the individual is like a pathology within the, like a sickness within the otherwise healthy body. And so social pathology perspectives had this idea, okay, well, if we could just take the Indian out of the home Right. And stop them from being like a little parasite, make them nice, good white people. Then they will be good cells to put back into the healthy body. That was the idea. And now now that social pathology has slipped into pathological civilization, which says society itself is sick and it infects individuals. And this infection perpetuates the sickness. So still we have to go into individuals and fix them give them the medicine of whatever intervention you want to give them. And and this is actually a very widespread understanding, the sort of pathological civilization. I talk about it in the first chapter of my book. This is a very widespread understanding of social problems because it has, again, that leftist kind of ring, the sick society, right? Um, But it still is the same thing as the old right-wing social pathology. At the end of the day, you still think individuals are sick and if we could give them the right medicine, we would fix them. So we have all of these parenting interventions to try to go in and teach indigenous mothers to be better parents, which is basically just to give them the ideology of intensive parenting, which is the ideology that governs parenting in white society, and especially working class white society. And we go in and we try to make them uh, intensive. So. But it gets localized. Right. It's it's this idea of like, oh, intensive parenting is actually what you used to do before colonization messed you up and stopped you being able to raise your kids. Um, And so they wrap up what is what is a modern discourse of parenting and pathology, which says that all social problems are ultimately down to what parents do. They wrap that up in indigenous language, like, oh, it's the your ancestors and the elders that used to teach you how to raise your children, and here's the four directions, and this direction is preconception, so make sure you eat right when you're pregnant. Bullshit. Um, and they basically just wrap up all of these um, very, like, Uh, individualized interventions that they use on the working class to, they blame the working class for like cycles of social problems. They do the exact same thing in indigenous communities but they wrap it up in indigenous language and the language of colonialism. So basically what they do is they pathologize parents in the exact same way that they used to. And they say, well, we're very sorry about this. In the past it wasn't true, but now it is. And that's why we have to take your children. There are enormous numbers of children in CARE. They're still taking them. The problems that we have on reserves are material. They're down to lack of infrastructure. They're the same kinds of problems you have when you're poor anywhere. Okay. It's not a psychological problem. We're not freaking traumatized. You can't get a job. Then you're going to be poor. Like you're not, you're not going to you, you spend your life. Like what do you do? You know, you, you wind up like just drinking. That's what winds up happening. Um, and these are the same kinds of problems that you have everywhere. It's not because we're traumatized. Stop with the trauma stuff. This was a, this is a discourse that's been introduced relatively recently. It is, it is. Very, very damaging. Uh, There's another very good book about this called Therapeutic Nations by Diane Millian, who's an American Indigenous academic. Um, And she goes into this in the Australian context as well, where they use these discourses to rescind self-determination. How can you self-determine if you're so messed up, if you're so psychologically damaged, if we all have PTSD, how can we can't even raise our children?
1: It it really is kind of noxious the way uh, that... This kind of social pathologization that you're talking about uh, becomes individuated uh, and rather than actually dealing with the kind of material conditions uh, that have led many of these communities into poverty for such a long time uh, there's just this endless effort uh, to try to relocate it uh, in the individual even if it's somewhat better now um, because they'll say at least while well, the previous governments are partly responsible for that right uh, it's really quite noxious and i think it's a really I'm not innovative even sure way that, to that talk it's it.
0: better i'm not even sure that it's better because mm. they just deflect they right.
2: they, man- they draw right. a line. They're doing the same thing. Yeah. Okay. So we lost her. Uh, Ashley, can you hear?s I did. I did want to like briefly. Well, it looks like maybe the internet's unstable. So maybe maybe we should just maybe we should just end it here. I think uh, if if we'll we'll get her back because I think that, that that was a good point to end on anyway.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah, I can hear her. you. Can just leave it there. I mean, I I ranted. I ranted anyway.
2: <laughs> no, it was so good. I mean, it was honestly, it was so interesting. Um, yeah. Like, I. I mean, I guess. Uh, I mean, I, ha- I had more things I wanted to ask you, but like we're already at time anyway, and 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 the internet's a little inconsistent anyway. So maybe yeah, maybe so sometime I... in the future, we can uh, do it again or, or bring you on another time. Uh, yeah, I mean, I regret
0: or... I regret saying like uh, that. Not everybody had a bad experience in residential schools. That's not what I meant. I meant like not everybody had a bad experience. Like like literally every single human person, indigenous person from 1492 to the present.
2: <laughs> of course, <laughs>
0: That's what I meant.
2: Yeah, um, yeah, we can we, we, we can add that in. <laughs>
0: sorry that's not yeah i but but it actually it is it is an interesting point that like 90 to 95 percent of people had a bad experience but five to ten percent of people had a good experience. oh shit ptsd yeah. is not in our dna yeah
2: yeah
0: got it
1: well, I just want to say, actually, thanks a lot for coming on. I thought that was a really interesting conversation. And hopefully we can have you back some other time because I would definitely like to follow up uh, on the kind of comments you were making there at the end. Because, again, I think that the dynamic that you're talking about there uh, is really noxious but very interesting, um, particularly when it comes to how it is that we should interrogate both uh, the social and individual pathologization that seems to be rampant uh, in our society right now. Um, well and
2: also just the way the left is kind of I feel like the left has been infected by this 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 language of trauma not just in the indigenous context but in so many yeah. other contexts I feel like so yeah there's a lot of other interesting there's stuff a, to pick up on
0: There's a lot of really good literature about it I highly recommend you read Diane Million's Therapeutic Nations very very good takedown of It all sounds so good it all sounds so progressive but it's being used against us
1: Absolutely Well, thanks a lot, Ashley. And again, uh, check out our book, The Semiotics of Happiness. And I guess I'll give you the last word. So can you tell us a little bit about the name and the subject of the new book uh, that you're working on right now?
0: So the new book is called Significant Emotions, which looks at the cycling of these different uh, discourses, how one gives way to the next. Basically, as I meant, as I talked about um, cycles of uh, um, discovery, adoption, expansion, and exhaustion, tries to get at what is underlying all of this, which I think is um, diminished subjectivity brought on by a real loss of freedom, so that, mm-hmm. that our avenues of freedom are actually sh- shutting down. And I think that's oh. what underlies our inability to understand human beings in any other way except vulnerable and infected by various pathologies
2: and so on great and you can find her on twitter too in the description and uh, thanks again
0: thank you so much